Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you've been a part of our church for the last few weeks or months or year plus, you know we've been studying through the gospel of Mark. And we've come to chapter 10 where Jesus is met by a group of Pharisees who challenge him trying to get him in trouble. And they try to trap him by getting him to admit his strong views on divorce. He had taught these up in the Sermon on the Mount. He had been uh, uh, quoted and no doubt debated with about that up in Galilee. Now they have followed him down to uh, Perea just outside of, uh, of uh, the Jordan River, just on the other side of the Jordan River. He's about to go up to Jerusalem here uh, in, in another chapter. So it's, it's a trap. They were expecting him to, can we use our vernacular, chicken out. Not say as strong a teaching about marriage and divorce as he had taught up 100 miles away from Jerusalem. Well, after he taught them how God's standard for marriage is so high, how his seriousness about the gravity of the vows of marriage is so intense, the disciples concluded in Matthew 19... If that's true, it's better if no one gets married. In other words, they got it. The question becomes, though, is that the only thing that God intended for us to know about marriage and divorce and remarriage? And the answer is obviously no. We have a New Testament that fills out so much more than just what Jesus taught. We learn about Jesus. We have an expansion on what he taught on so many issues. That's why we have the books of the New Testament, the epistles, and the book of Acts. One of those areas where we get further instruction is in 1 Corinthians 7 on this issue of divorce and remarriage. Let me read that for us. We'll set it in our minds, and then we'll, we'll dive into what many call uh, some of the most confusing words in Paul's writings. But I think if we'll just take them sequentially in the flow of his logic, we'll find his meaning Fairly clearly. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Paul says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. That not leave is a euphemism for divorce. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are set aside, they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not, going, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace for... How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? There are 
many parts of a wedding ceremony. I, I lost count at about 200 on the, the weddings that I've done in, in, over the years. I have seen so many people get married. I have, in some senses, the best seat in the house. You are two feet from watching this couple make their commitment to one another. It is, it is precious. It is priceless. So many parts of a wedding, the processional where the wedding party enters the service, the father's long walk down the aisle to give his daughter away. There's music, there's solos, there's scripture reading, there's candle lighting, there's the giving of rings. But the central element in a wedding ceremony are the vows. In fact, it's really the only indispensable part in a wedding you can do without a song or two, you can't do without the vows. I want you to listen again to the traditional vows, and I've chosen two uh, uh, names, just fictitious, Charles and Angela. Just listen to this. Charles is giving his vow to Angela. I, Charles, take you, Angela, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, listen to this vow, as long as we both shall live, and I always add, or until we see Jesus return. Till death do us part. These words bear enormous gravity, enormous implications. Ephesians 5 verse 4 says, when you make a vow to God, before God, do not be late in paying, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. In fact, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not follow up or pay. That's exactly what the disciples had concluded about Jesus teaching on marriage. If it's so serious, if it's so permanent, if it's such a one flesh relationship, you can go back and listen to the last two sermons, then it's better maybe not even to get married lest you violate such a serious and solemn vow. God takes our promises seriously, especially marriage vows. Too many today are treating the decision to promise their love in marriage as flippantly as buying pants in a mail order catalog or on the, off the internet, making a purchase with the idea that if I keep the receipt, I can make a return. Satisfaction should be guaranteed or I have a way out. But... Marriage problems today are not unique to our generation. They're not unique to our modern time. They're not unique to America. Marriage problems and marriage difficulties have persisted throughout history. And they were rampant in the New Testament day. As would have been expected, the church at Corinth was severely afflicted. Now, if you study the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you'll, you'll find out that the Corinthians suffered from two serious issues. They were confused and they were contaminated. They were confused about theology. They weren't finding the right implications for life because they had the wrong understanding of theology. So there was a disconnect between living and, and knowing God. But they were also contaminated. They were keeping the values of the world and trying to import them into their Christian experience. Oh, they loved the gospel. They had given their life 
to the Lord. They, they loved scripture. They loved Paul. They loved his preaching. But they weren't quite ready to let go of their worldview that was informed by that Greek culture in Corinth. It is to marriage then and some of the problems related to marriage that the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians is addressed. Now, look at the first phrase in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, stop right there. They had written Paul a letter. And Paul is writing 1 Corinthians as an answer to the letter they had. Wouldn't it be amazing to have the, one of the apostles alive today and to say, Paul, we have a few questions. And you send him a letter and he writes you a letter back and answers all the questions. That's what 1 Corinthians is. So when he's answering these, these issues in 1 Corinthians, these were obviously issues that were extant in Corinth. And they needed instruction. They didn't know what to do about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage. What was lawful, what was not. As he does this, he references what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, in Matthew 19, in Mark 10. But he also adds some thoughts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to cover problems and issues and struggles that Jesus had not personally addressed in the Gospels. Look for a moment uh, at verse 10. To the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. Well, that's interesting. Does this mean it's not divinely inspired or not scripture? No, he's just saying Jesus didn't say this, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give some footnotes and some endnotes to this issue. Verse 12, but to the rest, I say not the Lord. He's not making a distinction that God wouldn't say this, but I would. He's saying Jesus didn't say this when he taught on divorce, but the Spirit of God is now inspiring me to say this in the present as he's writing to the Corinthians. It's Paul's way of saying that he's about to write Something distinguished from what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry that does not contradict it, but informs and adds to it. And he could because he was under the divine inspiration of God as he wrote this letter. It's inspired by the Lord. You can look at verse 10. The Lord is inspiring me. The Holy Spirit is here speaking through Paul's words. What Paul teaches then about divorce and remarriage is God's truth about divorce and God's truth about Remarriage. After hours, hours of study this week on this passage and on this issue, let me share with you that I have found Paul's teaching here to be simpler than I had thought or simpler than I expected. I've also found it to be harder, much harder than I expected. But I've also found it to be full of more grace than I expected. I am aware, as, as, as one of your elders, as one of your shepherds, I am very aware that this issue affects many of you in the body today. Please know that I am not picking on you or your situation. We're just going to see what Paul says. Uh, my own insecurities, as I was putting my notes together, made me think, you know, so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so could possibly believe that I'm picking their situation. I, I, I'm really not. And at the same time, God really is. So let's listen to what he says. And as I know you to be a church that loves God's word, be humble and teachable, correctable, 
by God's precious word. Specifically, Paul writes to two situations, and there are two situations that the Corinthians needed guidance in that we still need guidance today in about divorce and about remarriage. We can easily break this passage down and recognize two situations God regulates for divorce and remarriage. Two situations that God regulates for divorce and remarriage. The first are regulations for Christians married to Christians. Regulations for Christians who are married to other believers, to Christians. This is verses 10 and 11. And we have a couple of sub-points or a little uh, uh, explanations under that. First of all, the first regulation for Christians married to Christians is they should not divorce. Pretty simple. They should not seek or get a divorce. They shouldn't separate. Verse 10. But to the married, and he's talking to believers here. We know this later because he'll distinguish another group to the rest. And the rest are those married to an unbeliever. So by, by uh, kind of reverse engineering, this is to the people who are married to Christians. Christians who are married to Christians. To the married Christians, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, lest you think this is just one directional. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse uh, 11. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Goes both ways. Paul deals with this very, very strictly, very, very straightforwardly. Now, many have viewed, as I said, this passage as Paul abrogating his, his divine authority, saying, well, I know that the Lord's taught you, but this is just me. This is my own flesh teaching you, not at all. What he's doing is saying simply this. If you go to Jesus teaching on divorce and look up what I'm about to say, you're not going to find it. If you go to Matthew or Mark or John or, 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 or Luke and you, and you look for what I'm about to say, Jesus didn't say this. Those writers didn't record this, but I am adding to that under the guidance and inspiration of God in his spirit. Don't try to look this up in the Gospels. That's the point. What's the instruction? Simple. Christians should stay together. He's emphatic. To the married, I give this instruction, this mandate. Stay together. What was the problem? Well, the confused and contaminated Corinthian church was imitating the marriage erosion they had been seeing in the world. It's the same today. Christians were divorcing, separating from Christians. And Paul said, don't. He writes here about leaving or separating. It's clear that he's talking about divorce. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses here, koridzo, is the same Greek word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19, 6 and in Mark 10, 9 when he's speaking about divorce. So we know he's talking about the same thing. But you have to be very careful. Listen, friends, we cannot import the contemporary uh, situation of divorce court and the legality of civil and uh, 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 proceedings back into the Bible times. There, there, there was nothing like that. It was really different. The Jews were, were married by a religious celebration. The Romans under a secular uh, uh, celebration, secular contract. It, it was completely different than our way. So when they say, put your husband out, put your wife out and that means divorce it was much simpler than than us there were no suits for who's going to take the house and the car and the, and the drapes and the curtains and there was no court like that you just sent each other away 
it was unfortunately far simpler than we even see today. The only reason, as we talked about last week and the last two weeks, the only reason that Jesus allows for divorce in general was that of unrepentant adultery, unrepentant sexual sin. And the emphasis is on unrepentant, an un, uh, a hardened heart. Now, you may be saying, okay, that's my commitment. But what if my spouse desires to leave me and we're both Christians? Now we come to this second regulation. If they divorce for unbiblical reasons, they should not remarry another. Instead, they should pursue reconciliation with each other. This comes right out of verse 11. If she, the wife, the Christian wife, the professing believer leaves, she must remain unmarried. Unless the marriage can be reconciled. It is really straightforward. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. What Paul is saying is if a Christian divorces another Christian, except for adultery, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, Neither party is free to remarry another person. But they can reconcile their relationship. They should either reconcile or remain unmarried. That's Paul's admonition. It's very clear. It's clarion clear. The Christian who divorces a spouse who is a believer is not allowed to marry someone else if they claim to be a believer. Now, we can conclude that if one of them violates this principle and remarries, then the other spouse is not bound to stay unmarried because there's no pathway back to reconcile. Does that make sense? If two Christians separate and there's no church discipline, we'll get to that in a moment, and one of them, even though they're not supposed to remarry, one of them remarries, the other would obviously be free to remarry because they can't reconnect and reconcile the relationship. There are many other questions we could ask, but Paul presupposes them all by simply telling Christians, remain married. Remain married. Notice that Paul doesn't bring up the exception clause for adultery or sexual sin here. And I think that's on purpose. I take this to mean that there is no adultery involved in this situation. He would have obviously brought that up had, had there been because he knew Jesus' teaching references it very well. This is separation for any reason other than a biblical reason. That's his point. Adultery or sexual sin. It's interesting and insightful that this is twofold. Notice that it's both for the wife and the Christian husband. This would have been really unique for Paul to address them both in that Greek society when usually you only dealt with the husband. To be perfectly clear, Paul is saying that if there is no adultery, then there's to be no divorce. And if there is a divorce between two believers, then there can be no remarriage to anyone else except to reconcile with each other. The instruction here is if there is a separation or divorce, the goal for the marriage and the church helping them is to reconcile them. Quick aside, remember, we can't read our contemporary situation back into theirs, but we do need to talk about a condition that our 
court system has brought up legal separation. What do we do with that? This is when there are wise reasons, and there are wise reasons, for a Christian couple to separate living locations for a, an abbreviated time when things are not going well to restore the marriage, to work on the marriage. There's no reference to this in Scripture, but neither is there a prohibition against it. But because there's no prohibition for a temporary separation, it's an exception to the rule. There may be situations where a separation is wise, a separation is helpful, the church steps in. For example, when there's danger to a spouse, separating the couple would be best for them to cool down, put ice on that volatile situation, provide individual counsel to the couple, pursue the four steps of spiritual restoration and discipline in each of their lives if there's sin Remember, in cases like this, we are talking about two professing believers. In that situation where they're separated, sin can be evaluated and the steps of church discipline pursued on a spouse who is unrepentant. But what about the faithful spouse? I hesitate to say victim because we're all culpable of sin at some level, but the faithful spouse in these situations, what are their options? If you're in danger regardless of the spiritual condition of your spouse, call the police. Romans 13 says that the, God has given us the government for the protection of the citizens of its society. Seek counsel, pray for reconciliation, and certainly if the sinning spouse goes further by divorcing and marrying someone else, the Faithful spouse would be free and your church leaders would be glad to walk with you carefully through that minefield. I think at this point we need to pause and just stop and take a deep breath and remember this. There is no problem in a believer's life that God cannot fix, heal, and restore if there's true repentance your best prevention for trouble and a potential divorce later is by training your heart to obey the Lord and love your spouse now. Think of this. For believers, there ought not be a back door in the house. You came in the house, you locked yourself in, and that's where you're gonna stay till death do us part. Therefore, if you're there, if you're stuck... If you're bound, if you're committed, then learn to work it out and enjoy each other. The grass will never be greener anywhere else. You know why? You're going into that field and you're taking your heart with you. I love my wife. I always get in trouble when I say this at home. Honey, stop. But I just, I, I just like her a lot too. Love her and like her and... We have our bumps in the roads and our arguments, our disagreements. But the grace that I have seen demonstrated in our marriage by God causing us to do deep heart work and examination in each of our hearts. We're working through these differences, these difficulties, these discussions, these arguments, these disagreements. Is a grace. Praise God he gave us these disagreements because it can move us closer in obedience to him individually and move us closer to each other. As a couple, 
There is, listen, there is grace for any situation. Don't look for the off-ramp or the eject button so quickly. Paul says, if you're married to a professing believer, there is no divorce. And if there is a divorce, do not seek to marry anyone else. And can I say this as graciously, as humbly, as shepherdingly as I can? If that's the case in our church, we will not marry you. We have to obey what God says here. It's actually pretty straightforward. The next situation is more sticky. Those are the regulations for Christians married to Christians. Number two, now we find Paul's regulations for Christians married to unbelievers. To unbelievers. Whereas the goal of of, uh, of two Christians who are having trouble is to reconcile and get back together. That's not always the goal in this situation. Paul's really clear. Now, he describes two situations. Before we get into our, our sub points in our outline here, let me describe the two situations. In 12 and 14, the unbeliever is, there's an unbeliever who's unwilling to remain married. If, you have, if you're a believer married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to, uh, uh, to remain with you and just live in harmony and, and have a, a, as good a marriage as you can have, the solution is stay married and evangelize through your, li- through your life and through your, your words. That's 1 Peter chapter 3 gives a whole instruction to a wife living with an unbelieving husband. Win him without a word. Be a woman of character. It's the same way character can cause influence in a relationship. So if an unbeliever, unbelieving spouse is willing to remain married to a believing spouse, great. Make it work. Situation two, though, in 15 and 16, is an unbeliever is unwilling to remain married to a believer, mostly because the believer has different values, because of their faith, is what Paul implies. And the solution there is the Christian is to receive the divorce peacefully and trust God with the spouse's salvation. So those are the two situations. Now let's drill down and unpack these regulations. First regulation is a, in verses 12 to 14, a believer should do everything possible to preserve the marriage. If you're married to an unbeliever, Paul says, the believer should do everything possible to preserve the marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate, applies here as well. Verse 12, but to the rest, I say not the Lord. The, the, the rest are someone married to an unbeliever, where the ones he just spoke to were the Christians married to each other. Beginning here in verse 12, he addresses something that Jesus did not address in his teaching on divorce, namely a believer married to an unbeliever. That's what he means, again, by the rest. Jesus did not say everything that could have been said about divorce and remarriage. Neither did the gospel writers record him giving an encyclopedia on this. Lots of footnotes and endnotes. That means that not everything Jesus said can be applied to every situation without further explanation by the New Testament. We have a whole canon of scripture, not just the gospel record. So again, the rest is clearly referring to spiritually mixed marriages. Now, a question we should answer before getting into the details of this text is this. Why is a Christian in this condition in the first place? Did they marry an unbeliever? That's obviously wrong, according to 2 Corinthians 6.14, to be unequally bound together, yoked together. How did a Christian get in this 
place in the first place? Well, you have possibly two unbelievers and one of them gets converted. One of them gets saved. Or you have an immature believer who didn't really understand God's value on being yoked equally and they, they sin and they marry an unbeliever. Paul's context of first-generation Christians, though, it's most likely that there were lots of marriages and one of them heard the gospel for the very first time, first generation, and they repent, they believe the gospel, they become Christians, but their spouse is not so quick to respond. What do you do then? That's the situation that Paul is writing to. A little footnote, by the way, to our single brothers and sisters. If you don't want to marry an unbeliever, which is clearly forbidden in 2 Corinthians 6.14, then you should never date an unbeliever. Does that make sense? My mom, my sweet little southern mom, when I first started dating and expressing interest in girls, and she used to say, Ricky, every date is a potential mate. And... <laughs> Her southern draw. I'm still here today. She's right. She's right. If you don't want to be burned, stay away from the fire. That's the point. This has much to, tr much to speak to our singles as well. Well, this is the first generation. You have believers married to unbelievers. What, regardless of the reason, what should a Christian do in that situation? Here's the biblical answer in verse 12. If any brother has a wife or sister has a husband, these are either way, who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, that's that first situation, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, this is the opposite side, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away either. Don't divorce. This is a situation that's very clearly spelled out. It's not talking about marrying an unbeliever, but about a situation where two unbelievers marry and one becomes a Christian later, or when two professing believers marry and one denies the faith. Or in our culture, maybe an immature believer marries an unbeliever without good instruction. His instruction here is simple. Stay married on your part. The word used here in verse 12 and in verse 13, uh, the, the Greek word means to send away, to divorce, or to leave. A me. The regulation is clear. Don't divorce if they're willing to live with you. Specifically, the believer is to do nothing to break up the marriage, but everything to preserve it. If, and this is key to the argument, if the unbelieving spouse wants to stay married. That's his point. If your unbelieving husband, your unbelieving wife want to stay married, don't abandon it. You are a gracious uh, gift in that relationship. You're a sanctifying influence, as we'll see in a moment. In fact, look at verse 14. He gets theological. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Now stop right there. We're going to find a few words in here that are familiar with us. Sanctified, sanctification, holiness. These are really important workhorse words that do more than you might think. Yes, there is a be holy for I am holy. First Peter quotes Leviticus 16 is saying that it's absolutely true. He's talking about the holiness of God, the moral perfections of God. But the word can also mean just set aside, set apart. 
they set aside, they sanctified uh, Nadab and Abihu for priests. That doesn't mean they made them morally pure. It means they set them aside from the people. They became uniquely set apart from that. Look at that version of sanctification or sanctified, setting aside or, uh, uh, and holiness here. The unbelieving husband is set apart, uniquely treated through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is set apart, uniquely treated through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are set apart, looked at uniquely, treated uniquely by God. What does this mean? It does not mean salvation or the person would be, not, would be called something other than an unbeliever. <laughs> He's not saying if you stay married to them long enough, that will guarantee their salvation. He just means they're living under the blessing of God because you are under the blessing of God as a believer. You're set apart. It simply means that the unsaved spouse and the children are set apart, get this, to enjoy God's graciousness from the saved parent, the saved spouse, in a way that unbelieving households and, parent, and children of unbelieving parents don't enjoy. For example, they have, the, they, they, they have the pleasure, the privilege in their home of having a person of integrity, a believer, a person of kindness, of grace, of forgiveness, a person who demonstrates the gospel in word and in deed, a person who knows the way to heaven and can explain it. They are set aside from the world uniquely. They have the voice of God in living form in their home in the saved spouse. They are demonstrative of the gospel. They have access to the word. So here, this means that an unbelieving partner is set aside to a unique, advantageous situation where he or she could be under the influence of the gospel by the faithful spouse's life and testimony. What this does not mean is that the unbeliever will be automatically saved a Christian parent in this situation with an unbelieving spouse should not fear that the unbeliever, unbelieving dad or mom will defile the child. This verse says just the opposite. God's grace is greater than all sin. Paul is saying that that believing mom or that believing dad, even if the spouse is unsaved, can move them position from being unclean, set apart from God, that's all that means, to clean, having access to God through the influence of that mom or dad. That's what he means when he says, otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are set aside. What a gift they have of a believing mom or a believing dad, even if the other spouse isn't saved. That's all he's saying here. What access they have to God through that person. Letter B, second regulation. The believer in this married to an unbeliever situation should not contest a divorce from an unbelieving spouse. Remember I told you at the beginning that there were things I dealt, dealt into and was surprised by and kind of raised my eyebrows and said, wow, look at what God said. Listen to what God says. Yet, if the unbelieving spouse leaves, divorces, this is a command. Let him or her 
divorce, leave. There's a command here that a Christian married to an unbeliever must obey. Verse 15 says, let him leave. It's an imperative. It's a command. And this departure is captured with the verb charizo, which we've seen in Matthew means divorce. In Mark means divorce. So the command here, get this, is that if an unbeliever wants a divorce to a believing spouse, Paul says, let them have it. Don't contest it. A Christian spouse is not to cling to a spouse who doesn't believe, who insists on departing. There should be no resistance regardless of the reason. The way this text is worded, by the way, we see that the unbeliever has likely taken steps toward leaving the marriage. They want to be out. Now, sometimes, can we just talk about this for a second? Sometimes this looks more, let me use a psychological term, passive-aggressive than others, like moving out of the bedroom, moving out of the house, Refusing to participate in the marriage. Refusing to pay bills. The bottom line is if the unbeliever has literally or practically abandoned the marriage covenant, there's a door that God opens and he expects us to go through. Listen, I've seen it many times where a husband says something like, I don't love you. I I don't want to be married to you anymore. But I don't want to pay for an attorney or divorce. So we're just going to stay married on paper, live separate lives, and not go through the the trouble of divorce. Oh, you can date whoever you want to. I'll do whoever I want to. But let's just not go through the trouble of divorce. I actually have heard that dozens of times. In that situation, is the believer now stuck? They've left, but they haven't divorced. Which again, if you go back to the original, that was not a... That was not even an idea in the original world. To have left was to have divorced. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7 tell us that if the unbelieving husband is willing to stay married, there's enormous evangelistic opportunity that the wife can take advantage of, but that's not the case here. The unbeliever wants out. Our elders have dealt with this exact situation many times. Here in our church, namely where an unbelieving spouse has abandoned all marital duties, even moved out, but will not file for divorce for some personal advantage and some personal reason. We've determined that if the Christian files the paperwork for divorce, he or she is merely completing what the unbeliever refuses to do but has already done practically. Because our words don't match the ancient world's words, which says you leave, you, you abandon. The truth is that the unbeliever has already started functionally the divorce. Still divorcing that faithful party. This is where there's so much wisdom and grace in letting the church investigate your your marriage, your heart, what's going on, to provide specific counsel, to provide specific help. You should never try to navigate this alone. That's one of the reasons God gives you elders and pastors and leaders. 
Again, this is the one instance in the Bible where divorce is actually commanded and required. Let him divorce. Let her leave. Now, if you're like me, you're, you're saying, how can that be and why would that happen? Paul knew you would ask. And so he answers it. The question becomes, what happens to the believer after the unbeliever leaves, departs, divorces? Paul anticipates the, an- the question, answers it in the last phrase of verse 15. We come to letter C here. The believer who has been abandoned by an unbelieving spouse is free to marry. Remarry. This is interesting as opposed to the first context. The regulations for two believers who get divorced. No, the only pathway is reconciliation. But if an unbeliever leaves, you're no longer bound and you may be remarried. How do we get that? The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Under bondage, interesting word. It means enslaved. It's a very strong compound Greek word. Duolu. It's accented. It's exclamation pointed. And the central point Paul is making here is that all the bonds of marriage have been completely removed when an unbeliever leaves the believer. I believe this means that he or she is released entirely from every obligation and totally free to remarry again. Listen, this also includes being free from any obligation to be reconciled to the former spouse and remarry that unbeliever like in verse 11, because that would mean violating 2 Corinthians 6 and marrying an unbeliever. Does that make sense? I mean, if the unbeliever leaves and they, they, they don't want the, the marriage anymore, and then later they say, let's, let's remarry. Paul says, don't marry an unbeliever, so you don't re-engage that relationship, but two believers you do attempt to reconcile. Same language, by the way. Is used, look at this, down in verse 39. A wife is bound, same word as bondage. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. This is significant when we retro engineer, reverse engineer this, this idea. You are, you are no longer, Greek word, bound, bound if your spouse dies. You can get remarried. That same word is used of a believer married to an unbeliever, but it's not used that you're no longer bound with the two believers who are married. Isn't that interesting? John MacArthur concludes, In God's sight, the bond between a husband and wife is dissolved only by death, Romans 7, 2. Adultery, Matthew 19, 9. And an unbeliever's leaving here in 1 Corinthians 7. When the bond or bondage is broken in any of those ways, a Christian is free to remarry. Throughout Scripture, whenever a legitimate divorce occurs, remarriage is assumed. Where divorce is permitted, remarriage is permitted. It is clearly forbidden in the case of verse 11, but here in another another text, dealing with divorce because of adultery, it is not. By implication, the permission given for a widow or widower to remarry, that's Romans 7.3, can extend to this present case where a believer is no longer under the bondage of that marriage vow, end quote. Great theologian Charles Hodge says this, if the unbeliever broke up the marriage, the Christian partner was therefore liberated from the contract. 
This is the interpretation that the Protestants have almost universally given to this verse. It's a passage of great importance because it is the, because it is the foundation of the Protestant doctrine that, will, that willful desertion is a legitimate ground for divorce, end quote. And I completely agree. Now, if that makes your head spin, that's why we have elders and pastors and people who want to help navigate the scriptures in your specific circumstance. Verse 15c has given people some heartburn over the years, but I don't think it's difficult to understand in, in the context and the flow of Paul's logic. And that's where we find our fourth regulation. God does not approve of an indefinite, in-between, I don't know what to call it, in-between situation, but rather peace through either reconciliation or divorce. Verse 15, but God has called us to peace. Interesting. Why would he say that here? Romans 12, 18, you remember Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, in all of your uh, efforts, be at peace with all men. God desires that his children pursue and promote peace as far as it's in your power. Consequently then, loose sins in marriage create an in-between situation where peace is not possible, where an unbeliever may leave the bedroom, leave the building, leave and not ever pursue that divorce. Keep you bound and tied up as a believer. A loose end, an in-between situation. He says, God has called you to resolve this thing through peace. And the resolution here is either through reconciliation, if there has been no divorce, they've just moved out, or through divorce, a full and final separation. I think the context indicates the situation to which Paul is referring. Namely, something like a Christian woman believing wrongly that she must remain married to her unbelieving husband no matter what and wrongly holds that the marriage to her unbelieving husband should be preserved even if he wants out. This unbelieving husband does not love her. He's not, he said he doesn't love her. He has no interest in the marriage. He's perhaps running around with other women. He's moved out of the bedroom or maybe out of the house. Could be that he even comes back now and again. This in-between situation upsets the kids, destabilizes the household, tortures the heart, and generates conflict rather than peace. Paul says, you need to resolve this. Resolve it. There's nothing peaceful about this arrangement. So instead, God calls for that matter to be concluded. Simply put, the biblical solution is peace, either by genuine reconciliation or by divorce. Now, he anticipates that there's probably some godly husband or wife who's thinking, my spouse wants out, my unbelieving spouse wants out, but I'm going to cling to this for many reasons, but maybe I want to cling to this because perhaps they won't get saved unless they stay with me. He answers that, verse 16. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Paul did not drop his idea of the sovereignty of God and salvation here. He's just saying that you'll be a part of their conversion. Whether you will save your husband. How do you know, O oh husband, husband, whether you will save 
your wife. This person should not hang on in an unpeaceful way, in an unpeaceful situation to see a spouse saved. Paul is telling us that salvation is only known and only overseen by God himself. His point is simple. You don't know that God will convert your sinning spouse though you're staying with them and, and they want to leave. You don't know that. One last footnote. What if the person who abandons professes to be a believer? Oh, everyone knows they're not a genuine believer. They haven't acted like that ever in their life. But they say, oh, I'm a Christian. I went to church. We went to church. We got married in the church. That's where the process of church discipline gives a very, very clear path. The church discipline, we, we wrongly call it discipline like it's the negative side, but it's also church restoration. The, the first three are all restorative. The last step is restorative for evangelism. You go to a person, you confront them. If they don't listen, you take someone with you. If they don't listen to you, you tell the whole church. If they don't listen to the church, then you treat them as an unbeliever. That doesn't mentally mean they're radioactive. It means they're the mission field. It's a completely different perspective. In other words, if the faithful spouse can be regarded as abandoned by an unbeliever, then verse 15 applies and remarriage, I believe, is an option. few pastoral final thoughts, okay? I was telling the elders this morning during our elders' prayer that we could, we could be on this issue for six months and not answer every situation. I know, I know, I know some of you are saying, yes, but, and some of you are saying, what if? I, I know, I know. And come and ask uh, Aaron. He'll answer all those questions after church for you. But let me just be as caring for your heart as I can. First, some final thoughts. Number one, God hates divorce. Let's remember that God detests and hates divorce. It breaks a promise. It brings unsettled dimension to families. It impacts children. It's a bad reflection on his own nature who is a covenant-keeping God. We have to remember that that's the foundation. Secondly, God allows divorce under specific circumstances. He permits, he allows divorce under specific circumstances. What circumstances are those? I just spent three weeks talking about them. Okay, we're not going to rehearse them all right now. Sexual sin and adultery, the unbelieving partner leaving, abandonment are the two categories. Thirdly, God permits remarriage under specific circumstances as well. If two believers pursue separation or divorce, there is no remarrying anyone else. They need to remarry each other. They need to reconcile each other with each other. But if a a believer is married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever leaves, they are no longer under bondage to that covenant or that contract. It's similar to death in 1 Corinthians 
that bond is broken and they are free to remarry. But they shouldn't reconcile to an unbelieving husband or wife because that would be creating an unequally yoked situation. Number four, and I want to be careful here. Marital relationships and conflicts are nuanced and complicated. I, I have sat with many couples who have explained their situation only to go home and weep. My wife and I have sat with, with people to go and weep and say there is no path forward unless God does something supernatural and miraculous. All marriages are nuanced and all complicated. But local church elders can provide biblical wisdom on a case-by-case basis. God gives wisdom. That's why we, we nominate men to, to the board of elders. They've demonstrated biblical acumen and life wisdom and can apply God's word. So you're not alone. Let us help you. I remember one, uh, a mentor of mine one time telling me, the healthier your church becomes, the more problems and parenting and marriage you're going to find. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But think about what he's saying. The healthier a church becomes, sin comes to the surface. We can deal with it. Sanctification is happening. It's okay to not be okay at Mission Road Bible Church because that's what we're here for each other for in the first place, right? We want to help each other and serve each other and care for each other. That's why we have care groups. That's why we have fellowship. That's why we, we have friendships. We want to bear one of those burdens and help each other. And then number five, and this is the most important thing perhaps we've said in the last three weeks. There is grace available for every situation. Can I say this? If you've sinned, if you've had an unbiblical divorce in your past, and you've had a, a remarriage that wasn't authored or ordained by God, what should you do? Get a divorce now and try to go back. What do we say? It's not right to do wrong to do right. Remain as you are, be faithful where God has called you to be right now. You can't unscramble eggs, but you can be faithful from now on moving forward. Try not to justify your sin. Confess that to the Lord. As we said back two weeks ago, the one who remarries commits adultery, but this is a, not an on, the verb. The Greek verb doesn't mean you, you have an ongoing adulterous relationship. This is not the unpardonable sin. There is grace and mercy for these indiscretions and these sins. Remain as you are. As I said in the beginning, these are, these are hard words. But they're gracious words. I was struck by the grace that the believing spouse whose unbelieving spouse leaves is free to remarry a believer. What grace. There's grace in two believers in that first context, that first set of regulations. When they have trouble, the goal is to bring the two back together. There is wisdom and counsel and grace. No situation is beyond the reach of God's grace. And no marriage that's wonderful is beyond the need of God's grace.
central to all this is the gospel, isn't it? This isn't kind of just a preacher's tag on. This brings us back to how important it is that we have understood that the wages for our sin is death. That Christ has forgiven us and given us new hearts and new lives to believe, to obey, to follow, to serve, to worship. That we believe in, in the fact that Jesus died instead of us as our substitute and was raised from the dead and gives us hope that death is not the final victor in our life. If you believe that, it has radical, radical impact on your marriage. Just read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. If you've not, wow. There is grace for you today. You can become a believer in Jesus Christ and your life completely reoriented to enjoy God's goodness in your life today, right now. Don't let that opportunity pass.